This episode of the Outside Podcast is sponsored by Hydroflask, maker of beautifully designed insulated bottles, cups, coolers, and a range of gear for your outdoor kitchen. Hydroflask is also a company that believes that every adventure starts with two simple words. Let's go. My name is Xavier Borja, usually just go by Zavi, and today we're going to go snowshoeing. Zavi is an outdoor educator, community builder, and Hydroflask ambassador. And for him, snowshoeing requires coffee. Every morning, every day starts with making some coffee. Always bring it up to the mountain. Bring it <laughs> anywhere I can, anywhere I go. Zavi keeps his coffee in a Hydroflask 16-ounce bottle with a flex-sip lid, so it stays hot even on the coldest winter days. Food-wise, I just go simple. Sandwich, peanut butter, and honey. His snack goes inside a Hydroflask insulated lunchbox because... Who wants a frozen peanut butter sandwich? Snack, coffee, and water, we're good to go. Now it's time to get all his gear together. Trekking poles or hiking sticks, it just really allows you to grip the snow, but you don't necessarily need these to go snowshoeing. All right, we're gonna go ahead and load up our mochila, backpack, put in a little water bottle in there. First aid, right there. Multi-purpose tool, just cause you never know. Chapstick. Also like to keep an extra pair of gloves just in case my hands get super wet or they're soaking. Uh, just nice to have a nice little extra pair in there. Hydroflask wants you to get out there and enjoy yourself, just like Zavi, which is why all their insulated bottles and lunchboxes are designed to keep your snacks and drinks at the just right temperature all day long. Ya llegamos! We're here! And conditions look so solid. Shop for yourself or for the outdoor lovers on your holiday list this season at hydroflask.com. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. I've always kind of explained my place in the world as a floater. When you are a refugee, you're kind of like a rootless tree. My name is Lopongla Kitakaisi, and on trail I'm known as Lil Buddha. Lopongla is a thru-hiker and a double-triple crowner. That means he's completed the Appalachian, Pacific Crest, and Continental Divide trails all twice over. But his life as a nomad began long before he took to backpacking America's most celebrated routes. In fact, he was on the move before he was even born. Lepongla's parents are Hmong, from Laos. In the mid-1970s, near the end of the war in Vietnam, his mother was pregnant with him when the fighting forced the family to go on the run. Hmong um, in Mandarin Chinese means free. And the Hmong are from Southeast Asia, originally from South China. They were recruited in the 1960s and 70s by the United States to really fight a covert war. My dad was a captain in the military and was in command of, at one point, over 250 people. But on this particular excursion, they were ambushed and the entire platoon was killed, except my father. My mom was fleeing from our village at the time. A very young mother of five children, all under the age of 10, me inside, unborn, had the bravery to cross a jungle by herself and ultimately the Mekong River into Thailand. It wasn't until many, many weeks later that my father and mother actually reunited. They met in Napong Village, um, which is my namesake. It was at the time a refugee camp. 
Escaping with his family, not yet born, to a refugee camp was the first ordeal Lepongla survived. His birth itself was the second. I really shouldn't even be here. I was stillborn, the story goes. My father went to all the Buddhist temples around Napong and asked them to come pray for me. It was a miracle I survived. Eventually, after the war, the Kitakaisi family resettled in the United States, in Kansas, which was a dramatic change for them in many ways. Hmong, we are of the mountains. We have always been. I don't think my parents ever really felt connected to the land in Kansas just because of the way that the topography, it's completely foreign to them. But my parents saved enough for summer vacation each summer. When they first came to Colorado and saw the Rocky Mountains, I think that was something that was like, okay, we're home. When you're a person like the Hmong who celebrate freedom and your choice to live the way that you want to, the mountains are the most conducive for that. It was on those family trips to the Rockies that Lepongla developed the love of the outdoors that would go on to shape his life. His parents nurtured that love, but back home in Kansas, they painted a vision of a career-centered future for him. At the same time, on his own, he was discovering countercultural influences like Jack Kerouac. My parents taught us to be very independent and free thinkers, and yet they wanted us to focus on the American dream where you become a doctor or a successful businessman. When I was a young kid, I was an artist. I drew a lot. I painted. I was really into punk music. And I picked up this book. It's called On the Road. Some people might have heard about it. (laughs) It's a little more popular now, I think. I just remember being transported into this world of adventure, excitement, and something completely unsafe to me, and thinking that I wanted to live that life. There's nothing more punk rock than donating all your stuff and putting everything of consequence into your backpack and disappearing into the woods. But Lepongla wasn't ready to go punk rock yet. Instead, he went to college, graduating in 1997, and then, with his parents nudging him along, he set out to pursue the American dream, taking a marketing job in New York City. I worked at American Express in the financial district, which was right next to the World Trade Center. He worked there for the next several years, and then, on the morning of September 11, 2001, he was on his way to work when everything changed. A warning here, Lepongla's description of his experience of 9-11 is graphic and intense. If you prefer to skip this section of the story, jump ahead by about four minutes. I remember being on the train, and the thing that I remember immediately is the smoke. There was already smoke down in the train station in the tunnels, and the MTA, which are the train workers, came down and said that we needed to evacuate. World Trade Center had this huge plaza in between the two towers. I made the mistake of exiting directly into that plaza area. And the first thing I noticed was debris. There's paper, pieces of desk and building just scattered across World Trade Center Plaza. And I was thinking, what what is all this mail? Like, you know, and people are saying a plane just hit the tower. If you've ever been near a volcano, You have this sense of, like, security and safety because it seems like it's so far away, the lava or smoke that's exploding. I had that same sensation with the World Trade Center and seeing the first tower on fire. I was like, oh my gosh, how are they going to put that out, right? That's what I thought. Well, not 10 seconds after that, the second plane hits the second tower. And now I'm running for my life. 
I remember running across uh, the plaza. Um, a woman had fallen down, um, was bleeding. Debris was falling from the impact of the second plane and buildings that you know were essentially collapsing. The woman was injured, I picked her up. Me and another guy helped her. Things are falling around me. There was a pizza shop that was in one of the buildings that we all ran into. I remember people being very bloody. People had, you know, again, all these different types of injuries from impact. And I, I don't know how, I, I had none. I was covered with, you know, the debris, but I had like, you know, no injury at all. Um, I was just lucky, I guess. And so you come out, and you, you see people covered with debris and people are screaming and you're like, why are they screaming? And they're, you know, you realize people are jumping out of the buildings now because, you know, they don't want to die, right? And, and it was too much for me. I, I just couldn't handle it. Because what, what kind of decision is that? So I turned away and walked down the street back to the West Village where I lived. Um, just in a daze, uh, not understanding what was happening. And then I remember people screaming again. I mean, that day it was screams and buildings collapsing and the sound of sirens. It's, that's, the, that's what I remember. But this scream was different. This was like um, a collective scream. And that's when the first tower collapsed. And I turned on 6th Avenue and looked downtown, and I just remember seeing the, the building fall down and knowing what I knew, you know, those people earlier who had made that, those choices to jump and not, you know, they were all going down with the building. And so you, you had that realization. But, but I want to add this also. All that devastation, all that pain and suffering, I think the one thing that people have forgotten is how the tri-state area and my fellow New Yorkers came together. Because that night, my friends and I, we got on our bikes and we were riding around and all the, all the public transportation had ceased, right? There were these huge lines of people that couldn't get home. I'm in the West Village, they're right down by my house. So I invite people, you know, five people to come over. Hey, if you need a, room, a place to stay, just come over. I remember the destruction, but I also remember how New York came together. And I think people that were there do as well. In the wake of that horrific day, Lepong La was traumatized by what he'd experienced. And yet, perhaps the most enduring feeling he took from it was that of human connection. People helping each other, and then standing together for many days afterwards. A network of strangers bonded by tragedy, but also by a shared desire to look out for one another. When he left New York to return to the mountains, that's what he'd be searching for. We'll take to the trail with Lepong La after a short break. At the top of the episode, outdoor educator Xavier Borja told us how he packs up for snowshoeing. Now, with his coffee in a hydroflask insulated bottle and a snack in an insulated lunchbox, he's ready for a day out in the cold. Ya estamos listo para caminar en la nieve. We're ready to walk in the snow. Let's get it. The joy of snowshoeing is in its simplicity. Probably the most accessible winter sport there is. That's the beauty of the technology with snowshoes, is that it spreads out your weight evenly. The key to enjoying any winter outing, says Zavi, 
is wearing and packing the right layers. It's a little bit chilly, but we prepared for that. I'm gonna throw on extra little jacket here. You can always take it off and just toss it in my backpack. Also, make sure you know where you're going. Pro tip, I like to take a picture of the map just in case I need it and I can always reference it later. It's pretty inclined hike, so let's get it. <laughs> and most important of all, remember to have fun. Enjoy where you're at, like the company you're with. That's a big part of being in the outdoors, you know, away from screen time and just enjoying what's around you and being present. Hydra Flask has partnered with Zavi and other inspiring outdoor leaders on a new video series called How We Go that has them sharing tips to help people of all skill levels get more out of their favorite outdoor activities. Oh, I forgot almost. Coffee. <laughs> To watch episodes of How We Go on everything from mountain biking and yoga to fly fishing and bouldering, follow Hydra Flask on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. My name is Xavier Borja, and this is How I Go. Vamonos! Hey everyone, before we get back to our story, I want to let you know that from now through the end of 2021, we are running our best deals yet on Outside Plus memberships. We've also made some big additions. Beyond having exclusive access to content across our digital network and print subscriptions to Outside Magazine and any one of our sister publications, you'll receive a $50 credit at the Outside Shop to use on gear from top brands, access to 600 hours of members-only films and television series, subscriptions to navigation apps, Gaia GPS and Trail Forks, and unlimited access to master classes in topics ranging from fitness training to backcountry cooking. Join now or purchase membership as a gift for someone else at OutsideOnline.com slash pod plus. In the months following 9-11, Lepong La increasingly felt that he no longer belonged in New York. City life, he felt, was making him someone he didn't want to be, a cynic. So in 2002, he quit his job in marketing to pursue his childhood punk rock dream of becoming a thru-hiker, full-time. I am ultimately a, a fairly happy, positive person. And I won't put all the blame on New York, but, you know, you come into interactions with people that don't always leave the best taste in your mouth. They make you sad. They make you very cynical. And, you know... People always ask me, well, what keeps you coming back to the trail? Why do you keep through hiking trails you've already hiked? And I always say the same thing, because I need those reminders that humanity is redeemable. When you're through hiking, that comes in spades, because we are quite dependent on the communities that we travel through and the kindness of strangers, which is really ironic because people, again, they think through hiking is about getting out into nature and getting away from humanity and people. But the irony of thru-hiking is it actually brings you back to people. He calls himself a reformed cynic now, and he's never really stopped hiking since, though he's worked occasional stints at marketing jobs around the country to earn a living. After this year, I've hiked up to 48,000 miles. When he's on the trail, Lepong La becomes Lil Buddha, a trail name bestowed on him by a veteran hiker known as Dharma, when Lepong La was completing his very first thru-hike on California's John Muir Trail. He must have been in his mid-40s to 50s at the time. And he kind of looks at my gear, kind of looks me up and down, and is like, yeah, you're not going to make it. <laughs> 
you know, just very direct because hikers of that generation were very direct and they told you what you were doing wrong. And so when I met Dharma, I actually did not like him. We did not get along. I kind of avoided him because he was so honest. And for whatever reasons, I think because our pace were, were very similar, we would end up at like the same campsite. And then I would see him on trail. And ultimately, I ended up at Guitar Lake, which is the lake right before the summit of Mount Whitney. And he was like, you know what? Let's do a, a Whitney sunrise. And I was like, a Whitney sunrise? That sounds great. What is that? He's like, oh, we wake up at like two o'clock and hike to the top of the mountain and watch the sun come up over the Mojave Desert. And I was like, that's great. Let's do it. And so we got up, hiked up to the top. And this was also the summer. Um, I started losing my hair as a young adult. <laughs> And I shaved my head and I was up on top of Whitney. The sun was rising up over the Mojave Desert. And I was just sitting in what is a very comfortable position, Lotus style. And um, he just kind of turned to me, Dharma, and said, my God, you look just like a little Buddha. And uh, I was like, OK, that's it. He's like, that's your trail name. And so I, it just kind of stuck. Despite their rocky beginning, the pair bonded. And despite Dharma's assertion that Lil Buddha wouldn't make it, he finished the trail. Today, Lil Buddha refers to Dharma as his trail dad. It was really Dharma who mentored me originally. And over the years, I've met many other Dharmas in my life. Some of them are younger than me. And they've always taught me something new. And so mentorship to me is something that is very important, especially within BIPOC communities that are underrepresented on trail. It's very important to me. And passing on knowledge and giving knowledge freely, giving your time freely and not expecting anything in return, that's how I was mentored. And I, I pass it on always to the next generation. Lil Buddha knows how important that mentorship can be for people of color on the trail. Because while he's found the connection he was seeking there, he has also faced some frightening moments. When he was hiking the Florida Trail in 2010, Lil Buddha stopped for a meal at a bar that had been recommended for backpackers on a map put out by the Trail Association. And uh, there were a couple of patrons within the bar that started making racial comments towards me. And the owners did nothing and actually kind of just laughed along. I was really uncomfortable. And so I got up and left. And at that time, this particular establishment let through hikers sleep in their like laundry room. So I had already put my stuff out, but I decided to go ahead and pack everything up because I felt unsafe. And as I was leaving, I was like, I'm not going to hike the Florida Trail because they know I'm doing that. So I'm going to walk this road, cross over and hike like a mile into the forest and just camp. And it's pouring out. And as I do that, the patrons who started making racial comments left the parking lot, drove down, and had their fog lights turned on. And so I basically just hid, you know, in the forest and waited for them to pass. It was really the first time that I felt like I, I could be harmed out, out in the woods. The next day, you know, the sun comes out. I'm walking the road. Of course, I'm looking both directions. And I walked to this little cafe that wasn't on the Florida Trail Association's maps. It was just like this little corner store. And I kind of explained to them, you know, what I was doing. They were so welcoming. And then I remember one of the owners had asked if I had any problems. And I, I knew what he meant, you know, because I'm a person of color traveling through the South. 
And I said, well, you know, the other night something did happen. And, and I explained to him what happened. And he's like, you know, that's not right. And he asked if I needed a gun. <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> he was going to give me a gun. And, you know, he knew those owners. And he said he was going to say something. After facing a situation where he feared for his life, Little Buddha had found strangers who would help him and speak up for him. It's that kind of connection that keeps him going, even though he knows that some people will never accept him. I grew up here. I was a baby when we came over, so I am American. But it's always on the back of your mind, right? Am I being treated differently because I look different? Or is it because I'm a dirty hiker? <laughs> I am a person of color, and I travel through this world as a person of color, and that doesn't end when I come onto the trail. I think that's the burden that all people of color have. And so if the trail is truly inclusive, and that's what we keep telling ourselves, and there's a certain population or segment of the trail community that says they aren't, then let's go ahead and open it up. Let's have that conversation. Let's bring more people into it, right? And so my advocacy has been very highly focused on mentoring people of color, but also just people that maybe not come from a certain social class, right, that need a little bit more help. I'm happy to offer my experience and, you know, give my time freely. Recently, as hate against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, or AAPIs, has seen a sharp rise during the COVID pandemic, Lil Buddha has felt compelled to speak out against it. This is a return to activism for him. When he was living in New York in the 90s, he had been involved with ACT UP, an organization committed to direct action to end the AIDS crisis. When a lot of the COVID fear monitoring happened and there were a lot of attacks, especially on elder Asian Americans, which culturally is just devastating to us because we are very family focused and we uplift our elders. It's something that's very important to us. So I think that I had a very visceral reaction to that, just because I could see my parents being attacked like that. He joined up with Stop AAPI Hate, a San Francisco-based nonprofit. And when he began his third traverse of the Continental Divide Trail earlier this year, Lil Buddha dedicated the trek to raising money for the Shared Liberation Network, an anti-racism response organization that, through its more than 40-component nonprofits, seeks to end racial discrimination. I kind of felt like I was in a unique position. I was planning to hike the Continental Divide Trail. And I would be put in these positions where I could be potentially discriminated against because I'm very obviously Asian American. So I pitched them the idea of joining their campaign and fundraising for them. I just wanted to have a conversation with the outdoor and through hiking community that Asian hate Israel and that as a community, we can come together and stop that. By the time Lil Buddha completed the hike, he had raised $5,000. Along the way, he had also had numerous conversations with other thru-hikers and strangers that once again confirmed his belief that being on trail isn't about escaping anything. It's about finding connections. It goes back to that whole faith-restoring process of meeting your fellow man. There are good people out there. You know, they're good people. You just have to go out there and find them. You can follow Lapongla Kitakaisi on Instagram. He's at Lil Buddha Hikes. That's Lil, L-I-L. Or subscribe to his newsletter at lilbuddhahikes.substack.com. 
This episode was developed from an Outside TV segment called Outsiders of the Year. If you're an Outside Plus member, you can watch it and a ton of other great content right now. Download the app at outside.tv slash podcast to stream on all your devices. I'm Marin Larson, and I wrote this episode, which was edited by Michael Roberts. The interviews with Lepongla Kitakaisi were conducted for Outside TV. Lindsay Hagen was the director of the segment. Aaron Sherman was the head of production. Executive producers for Outside TV were Rob Ferris, Chris Crowley, and Dan Riordan. This episode was brought to you by Hydroflask, maker of beautifully designed insulated bottles, cups, and coolers, and a company that believes that every adventure starts with two simple words. Let's go! Shop Hydroflask products for yourself or the outdoor lovers on your holiday list this season at hydroflask.com. The Outside Podcast is made possible by the support of our Outside Plus members. If you're not a member yet, now is a great time to join as we're offering the best deals of the year, and we keep adding amazing benefits. Learn more at outsideonline.com slash podplus. That's P-O-D-P-L-U-S.